Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. So Devin, you've been in sales and now marketing for some time, and it is not a secret that the use of data has increased pretty significantly in how we talk about sales and how sales folks manage their teams. Um, and I, it's something that's pretty close to your own heart and your own experiences as well. Yes, most definitely. And I think when I started in sales, I thought it was more slick talking, psychology. Can you be persuasive? That was my, you know, my perception of, of great salespeople. I admittedly got introduced to the concept of data and sales through Gong before I even worked here, like four, four or five years ago. And I saw hmm. a blog post that Chris Orlob had written, which was like kind of like the, the first sales stat, I think, that we published, which was talk time. Like, what is the ideal mm-hmm. talk time for buyers and sellers, specifically trying to help sellers be more productive? So I think at that time, it really clicked that, whoa, there's this new way to measure persuasiveness, to measure these soft skills or these I was born with them sales skills, you can't learn them type of things. Right, right. And now I'm just, I don't know, neck deep, eye deep in data and sales. And and I love it. (laughs) It is is one of the coolest parts of my job for sure. And I love seeing how it's not just happening in a silo. Like it's not just me or not just Gong, but people across the sales community are genuinely adopting a data-minded approach to their pipeline, to their forecast, to their discovery calls and anything Mm -hmm. and everything in between. I love it. Yeah. And David uh, Primer, who's our guest today, he's definitely one of those folks. He has a community that's built around him that is that intersection of psychology and data and sales and how they all fit and tie together. I found our conversation really fascinating uh, from the kickoff where he talks about his own title, which is chief sales scientist. Mm-hmm. I have never yeah. heard that before. Um, so that gives you a little bit of a setup for where the conversation is going to end up going. Um, but if you are like Devin and myself and you find these concepts fascinating, I think you will really enjoy this conversation with David. And if you can't get enough of David and sales and science and psychology, you can check out his book, Sell the Way You Buy. You can pick it up via the link in the show notes. Let's go hang out with David. Thanks for joining us. I have been uh, kind of a distant fan for a while, so it's nice to have you on the show. Oh, no, my pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, both of you. So you're the founder and chief selling scientist at Cerebral Selling. Can you give me a quick overview of what Cerebral Selling means and what it's all about? Yeah, I mean, Cerebral Selling is a modern sales training practice that helps modern sellers essentially sell the way they buy. 
And when I say sell the way they buy, I really mean two different dimensions. So number one, there's an element of empathy, meaning as sellers, we tend to sometimes fall back into habits where we execute tactics that wouldn't work on us if we happen to find ourselves in the buying side. So there's an empathetic component. But the second part, and actually, in my view, is almost much more important, is the pathways and mechanisms by which people, human beings, make purchasing decisions are something that's very hidden from most people. We actually don't understand the, the drivers behind how we decide everything from the software we buy to what we ordered for lunch, you know, to who we even marry, right? And so this idea of really picking apart this art and science of modern selling from the perspective of like empathy and, and the tactics, that's what cerebral selling is all about. I'm curious already. I want some examples, but not yet. Um, you have a first-time title, which is something that we always enjoy, which is Chief <laughs> Sales Scientist. You know this question's coming. Uh, can you share what that means and maybe what you're focused on right now? Yeah, well, I wish I wish I could tell you that this was like some some big grand design that like, oh, I thought about cerebral selling for years and it was finally, it was like, nope, I just, in my last VP of sales role, needed a website to store all the content that I had created over the years. And I said, I actually started my career as a research scientist over 20 years ago in kind of the science and engineering background. So I'm like, oh, like I'm, I like to think I'm very cerebral. So I'm like, oh, cerebral selling, URLs available, boom, off you go. And then I was thinking, you know, for a title, chief sales scientists like sounded pretty, pretty good because, you know, like there's lots of founders and CEOs, but I like the idea of kind of the, the rigor that being like a, a scientist and experimenter comes with is what I did before. It's someone who loves to learn, who loves to figure things out and then just does the best to share what they've learned with those they can help. And so founder and chief sales scientists seem like a, a good fit. And you'd be surprised, you know, people reach out to me all the time, especially on LinkedIn. Oh, I love the title. Like, where'd you get that from? I'm like, I wish there was a better story, but uh, no, that's, that's it. Well, you must have some marketing chops as well because you've crushed alliteration as chief selling scientist of cerebral selling. So <laughs> it's easy to remember. <laughs> And that, that researching background is still evident because you are also an author. So you've gone really, really deep into sales and understanding the ins and outs of it, outs of it from, from your perspective. Um, you recently wrote a book called Sell the Way You Buy. Uh, so congrats on, on the launch of that. Um, you know, one of the things that your the questions that your book focuses on is, do you ever wonder why you don't like talking to salespeople. So it's exactly that, like getting back into that seat of being a buyer. Tell us more about like how, like how did that question come up? Why is that important? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, one of the, we all stand on the shoulders of giants and one of my favorite sales books is Dan Pink's book, To Sell as Human. And in To Sell as Human, he asks people, he says, look, you know, selling is the number one profession, you know, in, in America. One out of nine people, I believe, and I talk about this in my book, too, are, are in some kind of bona fide sales title role, although the majority do a ton of selling or moving people in our, in our jobs. And so he asked people, he said, you know, what's the first word that comes to mind when I, when I say sales or selling? And he made a little word cloud of this, uh, of this uh, research. And 80% of the words are like visceral, negative, like pushy, sleazy, you know, manipulate, like negative reaction. And, and we all feel that way. Like I asked that, like I could be in a ballroom giving a talk to a thousand sales reps. And I say, show of hands, who here likes talking to salespeople, right? Very few hands go up. And so, so the question is, well, why is that the case? And one of the things that Dan Ping talks about is this concept of information asymmetry. 
And so I still believe that's primarily why people don't like talking to salespeople. So what does information asymmetry mean? It means whenever we're trying to buy something from someone, we always believe that they have more information about that product or service or their, even their motivations than we do. So I go to buy the used car. I don't know if it's a piece of crap or it's actually a good car. The salesperson probably knows that, but I don't, right? I don't know how they're even to now, even today, he argues that information asymmetry is being replaced by information parity, meaning you want to go buy something online. There's, there's Amazon reviews, there's G2 crowd, there's Glassdoor. There's like this democratization of, of these insights. And yet it's still, we still don't like talking to salespeople because, Hey, look, I don't know how you're compensated. I don't know why you're saying these things. I don't know what your motivations are. And so whenever we have that kind of, you know, lack of trust or authenticity, it breeds this fear. And that's why in general, we don't like talking to salespeople. We're always questioning why they do, what do they, what do they want out of this? Right. So that's, that's primarily why. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I can kind of understand being in the seat of that buyer. Um, I can empathize with that perspective a lot. Um, What can sales folks do to break down that front and build some of that trust so that buyers don't feel like, oh, hey, the person on the other side I'm talking to, they have all this information that they're not sharing with me. You know, there's there's so many different dimensions to that question because uh, it, it touches on how we prospect, how we do discovery, how we handle objections. So, like, I'll I'll give you like one example, right? How do we how do we break down that trust? Oftentimes in sales, we like to ask what I call contentious questions, right? So let's say we're having a conversation and you know you're I'm going to try to sell you something. Let's say I work for Gong and you're a customer of mine, and I say, so Sheena, I know we've been talking about uh, you know this this Gong purchase. I'm curious, what's your budget? For this project. See, when I say, what's your budget, all of a sudden you're like, you get like all defensive, right? Like imagine you go into a car dealership and the the car salesperson's like, so what, like how much do you have to spend on this car? (laughs) Right. And now you're in, in the same thing happens when I say, Sheena, what's the, what would the signing process for this look like in your company? And, you know, Devin, you know, who, um, who, who do you report to, you know, at, at your company? And so we always, we ask these questions, which as salespeople were almost, we're trained to do, but in the mind of our customer, and I, when I say customer, by the way, I also think sell the way you buy means we are customers too. We buy stuff all the time. We get prospected into, we, you know, we find ourselves on that side. And so when we get asked those questions, our, we get all defensive. Why are they asking? What are they going to do with the information? It's the same thing. If I said, Devin, can I just ask, how much money do you make? Right? You would never necessarily think of it, but it's a totally legitimate question. So what's actually happening when the gears are turning in your head? What's actually happening? And this is, you know, um, uh, a concept I'll borrow from a, a, a negotiation book that I really, really like. It's called Getting More by Stuart Diamond. Stuart Diamond's a, a business school professor at the Wharton School of Business, University of Pennsylvania. And he has this concept he talks about is the pictures in the other person's head. So when I ask you, what's your budget? What's the picture that's going on in the mind of the buyer? You're thinking about things like, what, why is he asking? And when I tell him, if I tell him, you know, what's he going to do with that information? Should I lowball? Because then, and so just a very teach around getting around these contentious of questions is whenever you ask a contentious question, follow it up with a very, I call it the simple reasoning phrase, which is the reason I ask is because Devin, how much money do you make? The reason I ask is because one day I would love to do what you do. Uh, and, and I, and I'm, but like, I have a good job now. I'm just wondering, am I taking a pay cut to do what you do? So when we start giving, can I ask you, Shane, what's your budget for this project? The reason I ask is because a lot of the clients that I speak to don't have budget set aside for this yet. And if that's the case with you, like 
that's okay too. So I'm just giving you this example. Now there's actually quite a lot of science wrapped up in how I've handled that. Like the reason I ask is because, but there's so many different ways, tactics like that, that people can use that are aligned with how people buy to help establish that trust and open communication. That is such a great tip. Um, I think sometimes some discovery questions can really come off as quite interrogative for the buyer. And you're just peppering me question after question. I don't know why you need this information. Um, So just adding a little bit more context and clarity and and taking a, a moment to provide that can be really, really valuable in helping to build a little bit more trust in those conversations. Can I give you another example, actually, from Lessons Learned from Gong? Please. Yeah. So one of the things, so I talk about this in my book, and I, I love, you know, the, the data that you all put out there. Um, and you have some statistics around webcam usage. And I think it's actually especially relevant now, uh, you know, during the pandemic when people, you, we can't go on site to meet our customers. And I'll tell you, actually, when I was at Salesforce, I used to run small business sales for the Eastern U.S. at Salesforce. And when I started and I took over my team, I had one-on-ones with all the reps, different cities, different territories. And I said, what's one thing you would go and tell yourself back you know, six months ago, 12 months ago that you would have, you would have loved to have known now. And they like hands down, the number one thing was, I wish I had gone into territory in person sooner. And the idea is when we meet people in person, all sorts of emotional barriers get broken down. And so Gong, I know you have some great data that talks about increased close rates when, when, when webcam usage is present in a selling conversation. And it's true. The question is, why does that happen? Why does webcam usage somehow increase our close rates? And it's a scientific principle known as abstraction. And the easiest way I can describe it is, let's say you're driving in your car and some jerk cuts you off in traffic. I don't know if this ever happened to you. And you, what do you do? Devin, what happens when some jerk cuts you off in traffic? You're a nice person. I'll preface this by saying that. I used to be a less nice person. I used to get pretty upset. I would say these days... I take a deep breath and I just let it go, but that's uh, probably a six-month new habit. (laughs) (laughs) We won't go into detail about what you did before, but let's say, for example, you start saying things and you start yelling or shaking your fist or doing things that would be inconsistent with the lovely person you are now. But ask yourself, if you knew who the person in the other car was, would you act that way? Absolutely not. And I've I have a story of having done that, which was getting cut off. Uh, we'll just say flipping them off and I'll we'll leave it there, dot, dot, dot. Getting to my location and seeing it was someone I knew who I was about to go play basketball with, which was a very oh. embarrassing thing. Now, to be fair, we were both going at each other. At, you know, we had had some exchanges. But I would say I did learn after that, hey, I should probably, one, not get so upset. But two, it helps if you know who's in that car. For sure. Yeah. Like, because they're, now there's like some sense, a sense of familiarity and they've done like behavioral science experiments in this area as well. When there's a certain amount of familiarity, even if it's just showing someone a picture, you see people in like in, in occupational health and safety roles. Let's say I'm driving a forklift. Right. And what do I do? I have a little picture of my family, and my kids right there on the dash to remind me why I'm doing it. That's what abstracts. It's so abstraction is when we create this distance. Our job as salespeople is to remove that distance, remove that abstraction. So that's why when we do video calls, like again, people hate, let's just, people hate talking to salespeople. They love buying stuff. They hate talking to salespeople. So if you're trying to prospect into me on like LinkedIn or you're sending me an email, I get to picture you like the the villain, however I like, right? Now, all of a sudden we're on video. 
you are more likely to open up to me. You're more likely to be interested in, you know, what I got going on in the background here. I'm like, I'm, I'm now not the enemy. I'm a real person. Right. And so it's very humanizing and it has a huge impact on our close rates. All right, everyone. In every episode, we have a data breakout, a quick sidebar to look at the data. David shared the concept of abstraction, the emotional barriers that fall away when we see each other as real people, and why turning on your webcam can actually build familiarity and boost your close rate. And our Gong Labs data backs that up. Gong's research team analyzed 12,282 sales opportunities from 2020. They looked specifically at video and its connection to win rates across SMB and enterprise sales cycles. It turns out that deals are 127% more likely to close when video is used during any point in the sales process. Even the buyer's use of video works in our favor, sending win rates up by 96%. That means selling with video not only helps us create a deeper connection with our customers, but can also have a dramatic impact on our ability to influence them. Stay tuned to the micro action at the end of the episode for tips to help you build a stronger connection during sales calls. I'm curious. So I used to see pictures of people, uh, people's email signature would have a picture of their face on it. And I never understood why. And maybe it was just, I love the way I look or here's a great photo. That's always a possibility. But do you think, like, you see where I'm going with this? Like, would you say, hey, putting your picture in your signature for an outbound, I don't know, prospecting email, would that, would that help? Absolutely. It will help. Um, you know, it's funny. It's almost in an email. I feel it kind of helps a little bit. I have no data to back me up on this helps a little bit more than in a LinkedIn profile. Cause everyone's got their picture on their LinkedIn profile. Right. But even things like, you know, the use of video, there's lots of tools where you can send people asynchronous video. Like a, a tool that I use often is a tool called uh, go video by a company called Vidyard. It's like a free Chrome plugin. Um, and it lets me, you know, send like record little few minute videos and, and send them to people from, even from a prospecting perspective. So you, you know, you don't have to, um, you don't have to be on a zoom meeting and even just them seeing you is powerful, not just because they're seeing you in person, but the other kind of, you know, secret little tactic that's baked into that is the fact that you put in the effort to make a, a custom little video for someone. Right. And it triggers their sense of reciprocity. And, and this goes, you know, if you want like a, even a simpler example of that, you're prospecting to someone on LinkedIn. I don't know about you all. I get prospect on LinkedIn from so many different dimensions. Oh, you're a small business owner. You're this, you're that. And it's staggering to me, especially in the last year that we've been in the pandemic, how little research and effort people put in to the prospecting, almost to the point where I'm sitting there scratching my head saying, do you even know what the hell it is I do? You know, I'm no, I don't run a call center. I'm not a Salesforce in implementation part. I don't know why you think this, right? Now imagine if you just did a teensy weensy little bit of research, right? To show me that you put in the effort, Never mind the video. I'm going to be much more likely, not necessarily to buy something from you, but at least to get back to you and tell you no. Do you the courtesy of telling you no? Otherwise, if you're just a drive-by kind of connect and pitch, there's gonna, there's no relationship. There's no effort. There's no reciprocity. So all these little things that we take for granted make a huge difference in your ability to convert customers. 
completely agree. And to tie the two together, to prep for this interview today, I went to your website and watched a video of you for my research. So I felt like I could know you a little bit more because, you know, that's what, you know, Sheena and I as, as interviewers, the sooner you can get to know somebody, you know, that first five, 10 minutes, you have a better conversation afterwards. It's very rare. You just spark a great conversation with someone you've never met before. Um, and so that was my goal. So I can say, uh, I don't know if we're hitting it off, David, I'll leave it up to you at the end of this episode, but I think so. <laughs> Um, it's going pretty good. I'd like to go back to something where you said, you know, there's plenty of ways that we as sellers sell, but we don't buy the same way. Can you share some more examples of that that might be, you know, relevant or common for people listening? Yeah. You know, one of the, the things I often talk about is uh, what people refer to as closing techniques, right? So we're on the phone or we're on the Zoom, we're having like a good conversation and, and the deal is heading in the right direction. And I say, you know, so, hey, Devin, Sheena, do you think there's any reason why we wouldn't be able to get a deal done in the next couple of days? Right? And what's going on in your mind? All of a sudden, you're starting to feel this pressure, right? This pressure of, well, hold on a second. I, you know, now I kind of, I don't really, you know, now I, I feel like my, my, my freedom to choose is being restricted. And interestingly, you see this a lot. And it's actually, I love sales lessons, by the way, from non, you know, we talk a lot about B2B technology sales and so on. I love sales lessons from life, you know, not just, you know, bona fide selling situations. Like when you walk into, for example, you walk into like the gap, right? You walk into a clothing store, you're in the mall, you walk into the gap and there's someone at the front who says, excuse me, sir, can I help you find something? What do you say? Sheena, what do you say? I'm just browsing. I'm just browsing. You know, Leave me alone. Why, yeah, because if I say I need help, even if you do need help, I'm essentially giving you consent yeah. to do your sleazy sales stuff to me. Yeah. Right. And so that's an, that's a micro example of what I refer to as like a closing tactic. It's like we're trying to limit the other person's freedoms to kind of to choose. It's like when I see a sign that says don't walk on the grass, I think to myself, this is some pretty awesome grass. I've never wanted to thing, walk David. on. You just validated me. I'm like, it's probably the best grass ever. I want to take my shoes off and walk on this yeah. grass. <laughs> What's so special? It's the same thing when we see a sign that says wet paint, don't touch. And we're like, well, hold on a second. And then we want to like put our finger on the, you know, it's true. It is wet paint because the sign told me I couldn't do it. And so a lot of times in our selling motion, like even for example, you're, you're prospecting into someone you say, oh, uh, hey, Sheena, I help, you know, uh, marketing leaders like you do A, B, and C and, and do this result. Um, I'd love to chat for 15 minutes. How's Tuesday at 2 p.m.? And you're thinking to yourself, who the hell is this guy? And why picking Tuesday at 2 p.m.? That's very presumptuous. Like, I think as the seller, I'm making it easy for you. All you have to do is say yes. But when I limit your ability to choose, it makes you lash out. It's a principle known as reactants. And I talk about it in, in the book. And you see, and that's actually why Again, you go to the gap and, and people don't pounce on you on the gap. They don't, they don't say, oh, excuse me, sir, can I, can I help you find something? What do they have? And actually, you know, the research I've seen on this area is amazing. They have someone at the front of the store folding shirts, like folding shirts, like they're busy, they're doing something. And they do that on purpose so that when they ask you, like, oh, hey, can I help you with something? It's, it's almost like you're interrupting them. You know, like they're taking time out of their schedule to help you. If they were just there in a state of like cat-like readiness, ready to pounce on you, you would be resistant, but no. And in fact, sometimes what they'll do is they'll say, uh, Sheena, or, or, I don't know your name, Sheena, but they'll say like, ma'am, mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to go into the back and get, um, I just got to get some more shirts. I'll be back out in a couple minutes. And look, if you need my help, I'll, I'll be back then. They do that on purpose, mm-hmm. right? And so the, the tactics that wouldn't work on us 
or some of these like high pressure, not even high pressure, but like low pressure closing tactics, things that we think are helping close the gap, which are actually really pushing our customers away. Another kind of interesting approach, I think, to kind of break down those barriers that I've seen in the retail space is every time I've been to a Michael Kors store, and now it is a pattern because it has happened like at least 10 times or more, um, the, right when I walk in the door, the saleswoman, usually women, or the salesperson will um, compliment me on something. And, you know, oh, I really love that. That color looks so nice on you. Or I love your shoes. And, you know, one day when I went in there in basically my scrubby sweatpants and stuff, I'm like, okay, there is no way. But they still <laughs> found a way to compliment me on something. So I'm like, okay, this is something they're clearly being trained on. So I'm curious, are there kind of, is, is there a way to bridge that to B2B selling? It's true. You know, it's funny. And I find myself repeating this consistently in my training. Uh, And this is actually one of the biggest challenges that sales reps have is that we, we can learn the tactics that will produce the result we're looking for. So one of the biggest tricks when it comes to, you know, selling tactics and modern sales tactics is not just understanding the tactics because we teach our reps lots of things that they can intellectually understand, but when they go out and they actually do them, they suck. They, they do them in a very, uh, you know, robotic way. We ask questions to customers like this polite interrogation. Um, we handle objections in a way that we believe that we were taught to do and yet still result in the customer getting pissed off. And the reason that happens is because we're not yet in tune with the specific tone, the specific emotion that we need to use. And so the thing that I actually end up repeating in, in so many of my training sessions is that All of these tactics that I'm going to teach you are very powerful, but when you use them, they should be one word, which is undetectable. They should be undetectable. It should not feel like I'm having a conversation. And the the easiest way sometimes I describe it with people is I say, think about something that you're passionate about. Maybe something that maybe someone else isn't passionate about. Maybe it's a kind of music or a sport or a, a cause and I say, like, I want you to, like, talk to me about that thing and tell me why you're so passionate, right? And they would, they would go on, and you know, the reason why I love baseball, because as a kid, my father would take me back. And it's like a very emotionally filled story. And it makes the customer believe you. Like, I believe you when you talk about something you're passionate about. But if I asked Devin what's something he's passionate about and said, Sheena, I want you to convince me that you're passionate about that thing, like, I can tell, right? And, like, it's the same way I can... Like I have, I have three, uh, three daughters and when one of my girls comes to me and they're about to hit me up for something, they want like a lift to the mall. They want to download an app. Like I can tell in two seconds, right? Just by the way, they're like, dad, I'm like, the answer is no, right? I get very defensive. <laughs> and so the, the real trick with all these tactics is making them undetectable and to make them undetectable, you need to practice, right? You need to practice, not just the tactic itself, but the the tone. So it sounds very human, you know, because so often the tactics that we use and even can I, and I'm going to, you know, kind of, I'm going to pull a Ricky Bobby and say, with all due respect to marketing, right? We love marketing, but what sometimes happens as a seller is, is the training that we get on how to communicate our value comes from the features and functions of our product. Did you know, Sheena, that version 3.0 is coming out and 3.0 has all these great things and the customers don't give a crap about what's in 3.0. Right. And so it's it's how we deliver it. It's the tone, it's the expressions. And that takes a little bit of of time to to learn. There are ways we can shortcut it, but undetectable, human feeling, authentic. That's the that's the nirvana we got to get to. 
Yeah, it's very similar when uh, you can tell someone's reading versus when they're having an authentic thought. But you heard my pause, like or the ums or the intonations and the speaking fast. Now I'm thinking I'm speaking slow and I'm speaking fast versus when I'm reading something to you, it's very, uh, it's more balanced, but it's less intonation and you can tell yes. immediately and you can tell on a cold call. That's just an easy version because you get interrupted and you can tell. Um, but I love a good cold call with some emotion in there. And, and I appreciate it even more because I know it's practice because no one, no one is just like that smooth and that emotional in a positive way on a cold call uh, unless you really put in the reps. For sure. Oh, yeah. No, look, it, it takes practice. It's funny. Sometimes we look to our kids because kids are actually great negotiators, right? And, and it's because they're not things that we as sellers get encumbered by. Like if we think that we're kind of – it's actually I, I talk about this a lot. It's a concept they call experience asymmetry. So Dan Ping talks about uh, uh, information asymmetry. I talk about this concept called experience asymmetry, which you can you can probably Google. I talk about it in my book, and I have a, a Harvard Business Post from a couple of years ago on it. And so much of selling is a younger, less experienced seller calling on a more senior-level decision-maker whose job they've never done. So if I'm a gong rep and I'm calling on VPs of sales and you know BDR managers and so on, Chances are I've never had that role before. And what happens is I become emotionally compromised. It's not like I'm talking about, you know, uh, Michael Kors bags or baseball or the thing that I love. I'm not saying you love Michael Kors. I'm just, you know, you said you were there 10 times. It's actually quite a lot of times. <laughs> That's actually a lot of times. <laughs> I blame it on my mom. <laughs> no, it's okay. Look, we get our habits from wherever. But, you know, um, uh, anyways, so, so we're not, it's not like we're talking about something that we love. You know, the, the challenge is when we get a script from our managers and we're talking about an abstract concept. And look, I'll also say, in all, in all fairness to us, most of us do, if I can call it, regular things. Meaning, if we, were, if we were saving starving children in third world countries or curing cancer, you better believe I'm manifesting tons of conviction around that at you know, a very early stage. But we're selling software. I'm training salespeople, writing books. We do normal things, if I can call it normal things. So how do we wrap the passion and conviction and emotion around something that so many other people do. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, there's a lot of like mind hacks around that, but mm -hmm. the authenticity is something that needs to come through, especially if you're younger and less experienced. And this is something I experienced early in my career as well. Like where customers were making fun of me when I'd be, I was a solution engineer. So shout out to all your sales engineers out there. I would go into demos of these big airlines and manufacturing companies. And they would say, David, we got systems in here that are, Right. So you got to overcome that. And this is making it undetectable and using some of these tactics is part and parcel of doing that. I feel like we've come to a good full circle, but I have one question we haven't asked, which I'm, I'm just genuinely curious, David, like if there's any other insights or something surprising from your research um, that you want to like put the cherry on top or we can just go to our closing question. I think the biggest thing, you know, when you think about the state of modern selling we're so advanced. You know, I, I often use the phrase like we're living in the future. We're living in the future, you know, with everything going on in the world. We're living in the future. And yet selling is still a fundamental part of what we do, moving people from one position to the next. And the baggage that we carry as, as sales professionals from years ago, right, it, it, that things that don't exist anymore still hold us back. And even the data and the science and the research shows, and this is not surprising, that sales is, is still one of the lowest uh, professions in terms of, um, you know, feelings of the trust that it creates. We're not doctors, we're not, you know, we're not nurses. 
we're actually in the in the 2020 Gallup survey. We're actually below lawyers by a number of a number Ouch. of pegs, right? Ouch. And but we're good people, Sheena. Like we're good people, right? And so it's it's still surprising to me that while we live in the future, we still have this legacy that we carry around with us that we need to we need to collectively do better to get rid of because, and this is actually why when people reach out to me on LinkedIn, don't do this by the way, but if you, you, people reach out to me on LinkedIn and the outreach is like so bad and horrible and I should just ignore it. But I think to myself, if you keep doing this, you are going to ruin sales for everyone, everyone, right? Because at the beginning people don't know, are you one of the good ones or one of the bad ones? And so we all have to collect it. It's like vaccinations. We all have to be vaccinated, right? Otherwise, it, none of it makes a difference. And so the thing that is surprising but not surprising is that the, the, the kind of the, the burden of being a professional seller still exists in terms of the emotion that it creates uh, after all these years. And, and with all the technologies, I'm looking at you and, and so many other technologies that we have to help us get better. If I can summarize it by saying what Dan Pink said in his book, he said, look, when, you know, when you can automate the designing of a house and you can automate this and you can automate that, being able to move someone, or I should say, you know, when we can automate all these very basic things, being able to move someone requires the same level of sophistication as it does to read an MRI scan. And sales, he says, is a thinking person's profession. And so it's still, it doesn't surprise me because it's such an easy and accessible profession to get into, but uh, super important for modern sellers to commit themselves to, to learning, right, to really embracing this as a profession that is so beautiful and nuanced and seek out the knowledge to get better. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's an ongoing struggle. There's lots of historical levers, but um, I'd say that's like the biggest thing I, I can share with, with modern sellers. Just commit yourself to learning and being better every day. I like it. I think of that a lot too. When, you know, I think of like the competition, if you think of you know, who's your competition, you might think another rep on your team. If you're trying to be number one, you might think, uh, you know, competitive solutions. I've always had this thought and I like the way you worded it, which is I'm also competing with every bad sales interaction this buyer's ever had. And I have to overcome that as quickly as possible. Absolutely. Well, that's why, you know, like trust. And the reason I ask is because, and can I help you find something like, all of these things are these initial interactions where there's the, the trust has not been established yet. Trust takes time. Trust takes time. Like we're not Oprah. We're not Barack Obama. We just can't dispense advice and people just follow it. Right. We need to establish that trust. And, and there's things that we can do though, that can help establish that, you know, that trust quickly. But yeah, the, the buyer seller relationship is still very much one of uh, initial conflict, I would say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's why that first touch point, that first outreach, you need to show why you're better than the rest and why you're different and why you're going to add value to that buyer. For sure. Well, the other thing I'll tell you is that as salespeople, we are like the tip of the spear. We are the first interaction typically. Now, I'm not saying with your website, right? But the first interaction someone has with the company. And it's almost like, I say this all the time, it's like an audition. The sales experience is an audition for what it's going to be like when you eventually become a customer. And now like we have this long-term relationship together. And so if that relationship is bad and it can be something as simple, I mean, I'll tell you, you I've heard of people, for example, um, where, you know, uh, let's say I call, let's, I'll, I'll, you know, shout out to my dad. Okay. So my dad's name is Leslie. People call him Les. And he got called by someone who wanted to sell him something, um, a a bank actually. 
and a bank he'd been dealing with for years. And he's in the database. He's worked with the bank for years. And someone called him up and said, you know, so, hey, Leslie. And he's like, oh, let me stop you there. No one calls me Leslie. Everyone calls me Les. And that's something really simple for you to have known, given that my relationship with the bank and it's probably in a CRM somewhere. And even like a simple, and he, and he, and he didn't convert. And even a simple, small thing like that, Spelling mistakes, the way you make people feel, your attention to detail, it all matters, especially in sales. Well, with that, we're at the tail end of of our conversation, but we can't let you go until we ask you this one question, which is how would you describe sales in one word? You know what? The word I would use is amazing. That's the, the high level it is so beautiful. It's so nuanced. It's so complicated. It's so, there's so, so much history and baggage and potential, you know, for everything. It's, you know, I fell, I mean, I'm talking about it as though it's a profession I've fallen in love with, which I have, um, you know, for 20 years. And this is why I'm so passionate about helping people be, be better at it. Um, but it's so, when you step back, it's just so amazing. It's so nuanced. It, it's like the giver and taker of, of all things. It's a very intoxicating profession. And that comes through in your tone, in your voice, how you talk about um, all the different aspects to sales throughout our conversation today. And if you like what David talks about and the way he digs into the psychology of selling, check out his book. Again, it's Sell the Way You Buy. Uh, It's available everywhere, Amazon. And we were so happy to have you on the show today, David. It's great. My pleasure. Look, I'm a big fan of what you're all doing over there. Thank you so much for having me. This was, uh, was a pleasure. Thanks, David. Every week, we like to bring you a micro action, something you can think about or put into play. Selling in a way that doesn't sync up with how we like to buy can trigger resistance. Our job as salespeople is to remove those barriers that disconnect us from the people we're trying to serve. If you're struggling to connect more deeply with buyers, ask yourself these three questions. One, am I using video to connect on a human level and show that I'm actually a real person? Two, am I asking contentious questions like, what's your budget? Without following it up with a simple reasoning phrase like, the reason I ask is because. And last, am I limiting people's ability to choose with questions like, how's Tuesday at 2 p.m.? Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io. 